Communion is a time of remembrance. Some people refer to it as communion, others the Lord's Supper, others the Eucharist. Eucharist comes from the Greek word eucharisto, which means to give thanks. And so in the communion table, we give thanks to Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, in communion, it's pointing. It's pointing to the return of Christ. Communion is a time of remembrance where we remember what Christ did for us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? We, before we came to Christ, we were the enemies of God. And through faith alone in Christ alone, we are transformed into the, the children of God. But Paul says... We do this ritual. There are two rituals in the church age, water baptism and communion. And Paul says, we do this ritual until he comes. Meaning, when he comes, we won't need the ritual anymore. Paul's point is, this is a time to remember, to not forget that your king is coming in a world that is wicked, in a world that is falling apart, that is full of evil, and it seems like it's in every corner, communion is a time to remember that the Lord is coming back. And when He comes back, He's not going to return as the Lamb. He's going to return as the Lion. When He comes back, He's going to bring the kingdom of God to this planet with its justice and peace and love, and make no mistake, its righteousness. This is who we remember today. The one who purchased us with His blood. The one who saved us. The one who gives us access to the kingdom of God, which He will bring from heaven to this planet. And the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high as a man, in flesh and bones. The only human being who has walked through the gates of heaven with flesh and bones. You see, everybody else there is waiting for their resurrection body, but not Jesus. And he sits in the place of authority, waiting for the time to come for him to return and to make all things right, to undo what the first Adam did. This is who we remember today. The bread represents who Jesus was and the, and the cup represents what He did. Jesus is God the flesh, God the Son in the flesh. That's what the bread represents. In His own body, He bore the sins of the world. Now, when we say that Jesus died on the cross, Jesus is fully God, fully man. How does deity die? I don't know. Deity doesn't die. How can we say that Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, died? Well, in his humanity he died. But the minute I say that, I also have to say that he is fully God, fully man. God doesn't die. God can't die. He bore his own sins, bore our sins in his own body as a man, because deity doesn't have flesh and bones. But he had to come as a man because the penalty for sin is death. That's what all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the millions of bulls and goats and sheep, that's what they pointed to. 
It was a, it was a, a gory affair when you brought your sacrifice to the priest at the temple. They pointed to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus. So the bread represents who he was. He bore our sins in his own body. And the cup represents what he did, the blood of Christ. He sacrificed for us. The bread is not actually the molecules of Jesus' body. And the cup is not actually the molecules of Jesus' blood. They're representative. They symbolize who he was, who he is. And what he did. So with that, I'll call the servers up and we'll serve the bread at this time. It's our custom for all to hold the bread until everyone's been served. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, This is my body which is given for you. Shall we eat together? We have not been redeemed with perishable things such as silver and gold inherited from the futile way of life inherited from our forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb without spot and without blemish the blood of Christ. At this time, we'll pass out the cup, and it's our custom for all to hold the cup until everyone's been served.
Are we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all? Also on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup, and he said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Shall we drink it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate, to remember. We thank you for the opportunity to do that in peace. We recognize that all of our brothers and sisters around the world have that same luxury. We ask that you help us not take it for granted. And we ask that this not be the only time that we remember Christ. Help us do it on Monday as well and throughout the week. We praise you, we honor you, and we thank you for the opportunity to serve you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Today we begin, we begin chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. And like the prior chapter, Jesus begins chapter 6 with a miracle. The miracle we're going to see is the feeding of the 5,000. As we've seen in the past, the Gospel of John is written around seven main miracles. The miracles, Jesus did many more than seven miracles, but the Apostle John writes his Gospel with an emphasis on a particular seven. We've seen these seven before. Let me just refresh your memory. Number one, the first miracle that John mentions is the turning of water into wine at the wedding at Cana in chapter 2. The second one is the healing of the royal official in chapter 4. The third miracle is the healing of the paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, which we just completed. And the fourth is the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. The fifth miracle is the walking on water, Jesus walking on water in chapter 6. The sixth miracle is Jesus healing the blind man in chapter 9. And finally, the seventh miracle is God, is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Remember the purpose statement for the book of John at the end of John chapter 20. John says, Jesus performed many more miracles. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The point is the apostle is emphasizing these seven miracles because through these miracles he's presenting a theme about who Jesus is, the Son of God, meaning he is of the same order of God. He is God in the flesh. The miracle we're going to see today the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that appears in all four of the Gospels. So it's a very important miracle. Now when I say the only miracle that's in all four of the Gospels, um, of course the resurrection is in all four of the Gospels as well, but with respect to miracles that Jesus did during his lifetime before he died and was raised from the dead, this is the only miracle that's mentioned in all four of the books. Let's start with verse 1 of chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. John begins chapter 6 the same way he began chapter 5, with this phrase, after these things, which is not very descriptive, right? I mean, it doesn't tell us much other than what he's about to say happened after what happened in chapter 5. If we want more detail as to the events that happened between chapter 5 and chapter 6, we've got to go to the other gospel writers. By looking at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that there were a number of events that happened between those two chapters. The Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 and 7 happened between John's chapter 5 and chapter 6. Jesus sending out the 12 disciples in pairs to go preach Mark 6. That also happened before the last verse of chapter 5 and the first verse of chapter 6. Also, Jesus became very well known, so much so that Herod Antipas, remember the the ruler who had beheaded John the Baptist, he executed John the Baptist. Jesus became so well known that Herod heard of him, and so Herod wanted to meet Jesus. Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead, 
All of these events happened before chapter 5, verse 47, and chapter 6, verse 1 of the Gospel of John. This is kind of the background before we see the feeding of the 5,000. In verse 1, John refers to the Sea of Galilee. As you can see here on the map, the Sea of Galilee is, well, I've got an arrow pointing to Tiberias, the, the town of Tiberias. John calls the Sea of Galilee Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. Now, when we call it a sea, you know, often we think of a sea that's, that's a, a saltwater body. Well, the Sea of Galilee is really a, it's a lake. It's a freshwater lake. And he's referring to the Sea of Tiberias because he's writing the book to a, to a wide audience. Some people know this lake as the Sea of Galilee, others as the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias was a city that was built by Herod Antipas, the same Herod Antipas that I just mentioned a moment ago. He builds the city on the southwestern coast of the lake, and he built it and named it after the emperor Tiberius. That's what you would do if you were under the emperor. You're some official, you're a governor in this case, in the, in the area of Palestine. You build something fancy and you name it after the emperor. That's how you curry favor with the emperor. You don't build something dinky, something that's not very impressive. You say, this is going to be named the emperor because the emperor would be very mad at that. You build something impressive. So that when people walk by, sometimes they would build coliseums. And so they'd name the coliseum after the emperor so that there's a connection between something impressive and the emperor, and the emperor's reputation would be promoted that way. So Herod Antipas builds Tiberias. The sea is named, is called Sea of Tiberias, not always Sea of Galilee. And John refers to both names because some people don't know it. The people in Palestine know it by the Sea of Galilee, and they, they also use, the Jews use another name to, to refer to it. But people outside of this area would often refer to it as the Roman name, Sea of Tiberias. That's why he's using both names, because his audience is primarily Gentiles, not primarily Jewish. Verse 1 says that Jesus went to the other side of the sea. We know from Luke chapter 9, verse 10, that he went to the town of Bethsaida, which is the opposite direction of Tiberias. So Tiberias is on the southwestern part of the sea, and Bethsaida is on the northeastern part of the sea. Matthew 14 tells us that Jesus went to a remote, isolated area. So he's not actually in the town of Bethsaida. He's close to it. He's kind of in a, a, an isolated area that's close by. Look at verse 2. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. It's one thing to hear about miraculous healings, like Jesus healing the paralytic who was paralyzed for almost 40 years in John chapter 5. Or to hear about all these other healings that Jesus had done. They're not recorded in the Gospel of John. You go to the other Gospels to, to see those. It's one thing to hear about healings. It's something altogether different to see them with your own eyes. And that's what John says the crowd saw. And that's why they're following Jesus. I'm not talking about the charlatans like a Benny Hinn who, who is producing a theater to try and hustle people for money and he's fake healing somebody. I'm not talking about the fake healers. The 
I meant to say the faith healers, but I guess they're the fake healers too. I'm not talking about them, right? I mean, that, 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 that's a fiction that's being used to hustle people for money. I'm talking about a healing that is verifiable, right? When they see the man at the pool of Bethesda who's, who's been crawling along, you know, they don't have wheelchairs back then, who's been crawling along and paralyzed for almost 40 years, and then he's walking around with his pallet. Everybody knows it's that guy who was paralyzed, and now he's healed, and he attributes it to Jesus. Same thing for these other healings. The people saw Jesus heal. So it's understandable, as we see here in this language in verse 2, it's understandable that there's a large crowd, that's the language John uses, a large crowd following Jesus. We know from verse 10 that there are 5,000 men Now, Matthew, in this crowd. Matthew tells us that the 5,000 figure was only the men, that it doesn't include the women and the children. So we're probably talking... You know, 10,000 people, 15,000, 20,000 people when you add the wives and you add children as well. Sadly, most in this crowd are not interested in Jesus. They're interested in the show. They're interested in the razzle-dazzle because that's the way they view the miracles. They view them as interesting, as neat. But they're not interested in a Messiah who they have to submit to. They're not interested in a Messiah on their own terms they're not interested in a Messiah who is, um, who is sovereign. They want a Messiah who's omnipotent. Right? They want a Messiah who will give them things, but they don't want a Messiah who they'll submit to. They want a Messiah who's a genie in a bottle. Right? They kind of rub the genie. He comes out, I want this and this and this, and then I, I'm, I, I don't need you right now, genie. You stay away from me, and then I'll call on you later. That's the kind of Messiah that they wanted one who had the power, omnipotent, to give them what they wanted, but not one who was sovereign, who demanded their submission. They, as we'll see, wanted a genie in a bottle. They wanted a Messiah who was not the Messiah who is. They wanted a different Jesus. Keep reading in verse 3. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. John notes the nearness of the Passover, not just to give us a time marker. I mean, that does give us a little bit of connection. So, you know, we're, we're close to April, April-ish. But that's not the main reason John's telling us that it's close to Passover. He's giving us not necessarily a time marker. He's giving us a theological marker so that we can understand what's going to happen in this chapter Passover was the most important of all of the feasts, of all of the Jewish feasts. It was a time when the people remembered what God had done for them. They remembered how God had birthed the nation out of Egyptian bondage, how God had used Moses to give them freedom from Pharaoh, and they celebrated the Passover meal by sacrificing a lamb and eating its flesh eating its, the, the, the meat of the lamb, and eating unleavened bread as well. The tradition of Passover colors the people's response to Jesus, to Jesus' miracle, to Jesus' words. Here in chapter 6, Jesus will supernaturally feed thousands in chapter 6. He will say, I am the bread of life from heaven in chapter 6. 
he will say, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood in chapter 6. Of course, he's not referring to cannibalism. He's referring to the atonement that he provides through his sacrifice. In chapter 6, the people will realize that he is Messiah. They will realize that he is the promised Messiah, but in their patriotic zeal, they want merely a political Messiah. They want a Messiah who's going to free them from the oppression of the Romans. Now, what's going to happen is, and we're not going to see that this Sunday, we'll see it next Sunday in verse 15, but they're going to try and make Jesus king by force because they want the political freedom that Messiah is promised to give. Now, by the way, there's nothing wrong with patriotism. I love my country. Patriotism is a good thing. I'm not criticizing patriotism at all, but like every other blessing, our blessings must be subordinate to God. Nations are a blessing from God. Our nation is a blessing from God. But we love our nation because we love our God, not the other way around. We don't love God because we love America. We love America because we love God. And what was happening with this people with this generation of Israelites, is they were so wrapped up in their patriotic zeal, nothing wrong with being patriotic, but they were so wrapped up in their patriotic zeal that when Messiah stood before them and and did miracles before them, they saw him through their goggles of nationalism. And so they saw him not as God in the flesh who insisted that they submit to him. They saw him as the one who would free them from the boot of the Romans. Jesus would do that. Jesus would provide political freedom to Israel to be sure. But first, he required submission. And that's the part of Messiah that the people are disinterested in. Similar to chapter 5 in chapter 6. Jesus will do a miracle, actually two miracles. And he'll do that in order to evidence who he is and to expose the people's unbelief. And he will thereby challenge them to submit to him. Look at verse 5. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Jesus was concerned about the well-being of the crowd Mark tells us in the, in the companion passage in Mark 6, he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. And the normal activity of God is compassion, blessing, mercy. That's the, the regular, the customary activity of God. It's true that in the end times, God will judge ruthlessly he will judge the unbeliever without mercy because the time for mercy will be finished just read the end of revelation 20 and you see this description about torments day and night forever and that's in reference to the to the end language of chapter 20 of the lake of fire that is true god will judge and he will do it utterly ruthlessly in the end times but that is not god's normal customary activity his normal activity is mercy judging is a rarity from God the prophet Isaiah said this in the context of God's judgment against Israel 
For the Lord will raise up, <clears throat> will rise up as at Mount Perazim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task, and to work his work, his extraordinary work. Here God, Isaiah was warning the people that God was going to judge Israel like he judged the enemies of Israel in the past at Mount Perazim or at Gibeon. But here the prophet says God also is doing this in a fashion that is unusual because when he, judge, when he judge, judges, it's an unusual task. It's an extraordinary work. Actually, the Hebrew word there for extraordinary means strange or alien. The exception to what God does is, is to judge because the normal course of action from God is mercy and compassion and blessing. And so in verse 5 chapter, of chapter 6, we're seeing God's normal activity, compassion and mercy, even to a crowd of unbelievers. Jesus, God in the flesh, is showing all of them compassion. And why does he ask Philip? Why does he say to Philip, where can we buy food for this crowd? I mean, why not to Peter or to John? Or to Andrew. Why Philip? Because we know from John chapter 1, verse 44, that Philip is from Bethsaida. Right? Philip knows where the Whataburgers are. Philip knows where the Dairy Queens are. And Jesus turns to Philip and says, where can we go to buy food for this large crowd? Keep reading in verse 6. This he was saying to test him. Jesus was saying to test Philip. This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. So now we get a second reason why Jesus asked Philip where they can buy food. He's testing Philip. God tests us from time to time. Now there's a distinction between testing and tempting. Let me just spend a couple of minutes on this. Sometimes God tests us. I didn't say tempt. Tests us. And he does it to strengthen our faith. James puts it this way in James 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is saying to do something that we look at and we think, that is the weirdest thing. That is the strangest thing. That's not normal. It's not natural to rejoice in trials and tribulations. It's not. It's not natural to rejoice in difficulties when things are painful. But God doesn't call us to the, super, to the natural. He calls us to the supernatural. And He empowers us to do that which is supernatural. He empowers us through the filling of the Spirit. It's supernatural to rejoice in the midst of suffering in the midst of trials and testing. And you rejoice because God is strengthening your muscle. It's not that you're going down to the gym and working on your biceps. God is strengthening your muscle of faith. And that's why you rejoice. Because when you have a strong muscle of faith, you're able to do the work of God. You're able to bring praise to God's name. And that produces eternal rewards. God tests us. James says in James 1, 2 through 4. 
But James also said in, in chapter 1 of James that, he does, that God does not tempt us. He never tempts us. Verse 13, let no one say, he is, say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Temptation comes from three sources. It comes from your sin nature, from my sin nature, number one. Number two, it comes from the devil. And number three, it comes from the devil's world system. The devil's world, world system, the devil who is the ruler of this world, little r, God's the, the ruler of the universe, including the planet, capital R. But the devil has a whole system that is designed to draw us away from God, that is designed to draw us into the devil's distraction, the devil's evil, the devil's wickedness that neutralizes us in the spiritual conflict. So in verse 6 of John chapter 6, Jesus is testing Philip to strengthen his muscle of faith. He's using a difficulty, a trial, to reveal how Philip will respond. Now Jesus is God in the flesh, so he knows how Philip is going to respond. It's Philip who doesn't know how Philip is going to respond. So the test is for Philip's benefit. Philip's an Philip answers Jesus in verse 7, where he says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. This is the wrong answer. This is the wrong answer to Jesus' question. When Philip references 200 denarii, a denarii was a day's wage for the average worker. So 200 denarii is about eight months' worth of wages for the average man. Philip is saying, Jesus, look, this crowd is too big. There are too many people here. Even if we had a huge amount of money, 200 denarii, we still would only be able to buy a little bit of food. And the amount of food that we could get with that large amount of money is just going to feed them a little bit, Philip says. Why is this a bad answer? Why is this a wrong answer? Because Philip automatically goes to what he can see and touch and feel. He his mind automatically goes to what he sees versus what he should be going to, which is faith. Philip's response should have been, Jesus, you're asking me about where we can go to buy food. We don't have enough money to feed all these people. You know that. And even if we did, there's no bakery around that could feed 20,000 people. You know that. But I've seen what you do, Jesus. I've seen how you change water into wine to a crowd at a wedding. I've seen how you heal a man who's been paralyzed for almost 40, year, 40 years. I've seen, how, I've seen how you cast out demons. I don't know what you're going to do, but let me just sit down here and watch you work. Because I know what you do. So surprise me. That is what Philip's answer should have been. But instead, Philip says... And we can't do this. We've got not enough money, and even if we had enough money, that's only going to buy a tidbit of food for this crowd. G Philip's response is the wrong response. So another disciple speaks up. Look at verse 8. 
One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Andrew said, Look, we've got a little bit of food here from this boy. It's really a small amount of food, so I don't know how this is going to work, Jesus, but here you go. Five barley loaves and two fish. Barley was the, the food. It was a common food for the poor. It's an inexpensive grain. Sometimes the food was even used to feed livestock, like horses or donkeys. And there are five loaves of this barley. Now, when you, think, when you see this word loaf, don't think of Mrs. Baird's you know, fluffy loaf that you get at the grocery store. The little boy's not carrying five fluffy loaves of Mrs. Baird's bread. When you, when you see the word loaf, think of like a, a pancake, like a, a pita bread that's kind of in a circle. So he's got, you know, five pancake-like pieces of bread. And he's got two fish. Now, the fish here, it's not like, you know, you go down to a freshwater lake and you catch a big catfish or you catch a trout. These are like, you know, little sardines, pickled sardines. This is what the little boy has. It's very little food. It's enough to fill, fill his little belly, but that's all he has. This is when God delivers. God delivers when the situation is impossible. Not when the situation is difficult. When the situation is totally impossible and there are no other options. That's what's happening here. When you have nowhere else to go and the situation is totally unsolvable, that's when God delivers. And the reason I say that is because that's where this chapter is driving towards. I mean, the very end of the chapter ends with the great confession of faith from Peter, right? Where Jesus says, he's been teaching and many of his followers leave. And Jesus turns to the disciples, to the twelve, and says, and you? Are you leaving too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? You got the words of eternal life. Look at, look at the language verbatim. John 6, 66. As a result of this, this was Jesus' teaching, many of his disciples, the, fo- the followers of him, and we're not talking about the 12 right there, withdrew, and were not walking with him. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, there's an impossibility that we have. It is impossible. Peter, this is Peter saying, it's impossible for us to get access to eternal life. You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone have access to the Father. Where else are we going to go? Peter says, Jesus We know from Matthew 16, which is the parallel passage here, Jesus says, you got it, Peter. And by the way, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter. Our Father in heaven, the Father in heaven revealed that to you, Peter. This is where the chapter is marching. It's marching to the reality that we need to get through our heads that the time God shows up is when everything is toast when it looks totally impossible. And that's when you go to Him. I mean, obviously, you should be going to Him all the time. 
But when things look as bleak as they can look, I don't know about you, but I feel like our country is in a pretty bad spot. But it's worse than it was a month ago. And it's worse than it was a year ago. And it's certainly worse than it was a decade ago. And so if we're on the same trajectory, it's going to be worse another month from now and another year from now. I don't know what the election's going to yield in November. I shudder at the thought. By the way, you have an obligation. You have an obligation. You will explain to the Lord how you voted, just so you know. You will. I hope you vote for a candidate who promotes the Word of God. You will explain to the Lord if you fail to vote. Because we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and we will give an account of everything we thought and said and did. And one of the things that you either did or failed to do was vote. And how you voted. Our country is going the wrong direction, to say it mildly. Things look impossible. Now is the time to trust in the Lord. Now is the time. The Lord delivers when things look horrible, utterly impossible, and when the person recognizes that it is only the Lord who can solve the problem. One last thing about verse 9. Don't miss the faith of the little boy. Right? The little boy whose mama gave him a meal. Right? She packed him a meal. She probably said something like, Don't lose this. This is the only food. So what does the little boy do? The little boy gives it all to Jesus. He holds nothing back. He gives him everything he has. And then he waits. He waits expectantly to see Jesus do the impossible. Is this not a picture of faith? Is this not a picture of of salvation? We are to give Jesus everything that is the thing that is most important to us. You know the thing that's most important to you? It's not your money. It's not your car. It's not your entertainment. It's not your job. Those, I'm not saying those things are unimportant. I'm just saying there's something infinitely, eternally more important than that. It's your eternal destiny. And so we entrust with Jesus the thing that is most important to us, our eternal destiny, and then we wait expectantly. To see Jesus do the impossible. To see Jesus reconcile us to a God who is righteous and wrathful. To a God who we deserve nothing but judgment from. We wait to see Him do the impossible. To reconcile us. So that instead of judgment from that God, we receive blessing and mercy in eternity, forever. We actually receive it now in our life, but eternity is the real payday. That's the impossible, that God would reconcile His enemies to Himself, sinners being reconciled to the righteous. The little boy's faith is a picture of our faith. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, Have the people sit down, Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. It's comfortable. That's why he's referencing grass, something to 
to sit on. It's not like, you know, the hill country here where grass can be pretty scarce. And if somebody says to 10,000 people or 20,000 people, sit down, you're kind of, eh, it's all rocks there. No, there's, there's some, some, a lot of grass here. And so it's a comfortable spot where they're sitting. Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. Do you understand this miracle? They saw the miracle. They touched the miracle. They smelled the miracle. They ate the miracle. They tasted the miracle. They digested the miracle. What a miracle. And when I say they saw it, we understand from the other gospel accounts that the way this worked was Jesus gave it to the disciples and then the disciples distributed it. Jesus has in his hand five pancakes, five pita pancakes, and two sardines. So he goes to Philip, and five becomes 50 in his hand. And two becomes 20, or 200. And Philip takes it. And then he turns to Andrew. It just reproduces. It just multiplies exponentially in his hands. And then he does it to John. And then he does it to all these disciples. And the people are just watching, and they're eating. They saw the miracle, they tasted the miracle, they smelled the miracle, they ate the miracle, they digested the miracle. This is a miracle of miracles. This is why it's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Many of the crowd would have remembered how God used Moses to supernaturally feed the Israelites in the Exodus generation with manna from heaven. And God used Moses to do that in a remote place, in the wilderness. This is where Jesus is. He's in a remote place outside of the town of Bethsaida. Excuse me, in verse 11 you see this phrase, as much as they wanted. They ate as much as they wanted. This is like a banquet. This is like a, a free buffet. You go to the buffet line and you just keep going around the buffet line. You go to your table, you eat, and you get back in the buffet line. But there's no cover charge. There's no fee. This is a banquet that Jesus delivers to them. When God provides, He does it in abundance. And so Jesus showed that He is able to do what the Scriptures promised that Messiah would do, to bring the kingdom. And the kingdom is often pictured as a banquet. Isaiah 25, 6 <clears throat> the Lord of the armies will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples, that's believing Jews, that's believing Gentiles, on this mountain in Jerusalem, at Mount Zion, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. In James 1, verses 2 through 4, which we saw earlier, we see that we are to rejoice in trials. That's not natural for us. What we do is that we gravitate to comfort. That's what's natural to us. We gravitate to ease and to what's comfortable. But James teaches us 
that we are to rejoice even in trials. And God empowers us supernaturally to do that. And that exercises the faith muscle so that we can then glorify God and that ultimately gets us rewards for eternity and praise actually from God. What happens in the kingdom, Jesus is the promised Messiah and he evidenced to the crowd that he's able to deliver the kingdom. This is just one glimpse of the kingdom in terms of the ease and comfort of the kingdom because the kingdom is described as celebrating, is pictured as a banquet. And so, yes, there will be ease and comfort for all believers. Not this side of heaven, that side of heaven in the kingdom. And so Jesus is communicating to them and displaying to them through this miracle, I'm able to deliver the promises that the promised Messiah was said and was prophesied that He would deliver. The reason why your life today is not characterized by ease and comfort. Now, I get that we as Americans have more prosperity than the guy who lives in North Korea. I get that. But still, our life is not compared by ease and com- with ease and comfort because there are difficulties in life. There's death in life. There's pain. There's illness. But the reason for that is because the ruler of this world, the devil, remember Jesus said the devil is the ruler of this world, little r, ruler, the ruler of this world, that's what characterizes his kingdom. Death, pain, suffering, grief, difficulty. And when the king returns, he will vanquish all of those things. He will vanquish the current ruler, cast him into the pit for a thousand years, chapter Revelation, or chapter 20 of Revelation, and then at the end of chapter 20, into the lake of fire forever. Don't miss what Jesus does here in verse 11. He thanks God. He thanks God for the food. Every good thing comes from God, James says in in chapter 1, verse 17 of his book. We should thank God for the good things in our lives, including the most basic food that you eat, I hope, three times a day. I mean, if you're not thanking God for the most basic of all the good things in your life, you need to do a body check. If you don't think, thank God before you eat the food that He is giving you, you say, no, 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 no. I got that food for myself because I paid for it. Wrong. You may think that your money got the food. I mean, technically, yes, you bought the food. But God empowered all of that to happen. And like that, he can take it away. Like that, that money that you rely on, that you're so enamored with, boom, he can take it away in a nanosecond. So I hope you thank God for your food because ultimately he's bringing it to you. And if you're not, you need to ask yourself, why not? We shouldn't be ungrateful to God. Look at verse 12. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Again, we see the largesse of Jesus' provision. The abundance of it. It's not that he simply provided them food so that they could eat however much they wanted. That happened. 
But now there's, abundant, there's an abundance of leftovers, so much so that they have to gather it in multiple baskets, in 12 baskets. The point of the miracle was to show that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah and that his provision is always, always more than enough. Look at verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is come into the world. Jesus fit the pattern of Moses by providing food from heaven in a desolate place, like Moses did with manna in the wilderness. So the people rightly concluded that Jesus was the prophet that Moses spoke of. Remember back in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen you shall listen to him. But as chapter 6 unfolds, we'll see that they do not listen to Jesus. I mean, they recognize him as the prophet, but they don't do what Jesus tells them to do. They refuse to listen to his words that he is the only access to the Father. They were interested in Jesus not because he gave them access to the Father. They're interested in Jesus because he gives them free stuff. Because he gives them free food. And because they recognize that he's got the power to give them political freedom as well. They want prosperity from Jesus. They want a prosperity gospel Jesus. You know, a Jesus that gives you health, wealth, and prosperity. Does Jesus do that? Sure. But he's much more than that. What comes before the blessing from Jesus is submission to Him. And this is what they refuse to do. They refuse to submit to His sovereignty. They want a Jesus who will give them things. They're okay with His omnipotence, but they're not okay with His sovereignty, which is to say they're not okay with the Jesus who is. They don't trust in the Jesus who is. They trust in a different Jesus. And so that's why you see these charlatans in the prosperity gospel movement. Often there's this fake healing in that movement. They're selling a Jesus who is a Jesus who will give you free stuff, health, wealth, and prosperity. They don't tell you that Jesus sometimes will give you testing. And sometimes it's going to hurt. Sometimes he's going to work that faith muscle. That's the Jesus who is. He's the one who requires submission. Maybe you're here today and you don't know the Jesus who is. Maybe you're here today and you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. He loves you. Jesus loves you. And yet you are his enemy. We are the enemies of God before we come to Christ. That's just what it says. The enemies of God subject to his fierce wrath to his judgment because he is holy he is righteous and we are sinners he can't just ignore our sin he can't just say "Eh, it's all good his holiness prevents him from doing that he must judge us and the judgment for sin is condemnation and so if you're here today without christ without hope without eternal life we want you to know that god loves you We want you to know that he loves you despite you being his enemy. And so what you must do to be saved is you must trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. 
And then that instant you become the daughter of God, the, the son of God, the child of God. When you trust in him, he gets all the glory. You get none of the glory. You get none of the praise, which is the way he designs it because he alone is worthy. You have to check your pride. You have to swallow your pride to trust in Christ, to recognize that you are a sinner in need of salvation. That requires an act of humility, and he rewards humility. First, the one who trusts in him for salvation, and then the one who walks daily with him That's an act of humility as well. I'm available afterward if you'd like to visit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you challenge us by it. We ask that you transform us, that we may be your servants in a lost and dying world, that we may reflect your glory and your light and your love to a world that hates you. We pray these things in the name of his majesty, the king of the kings, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.